Oh, there, there you go. Fantastic. Okay, all right. So we're live. Hello, hi. I am so excited. I could see it. The Star of Bethlehem. You know, that that thing that's supposed to be in the sky for the last few days, it's been so cloudy. And so I couldn't see it. Remember on Tuesday, I went out walking and I couldn't see anything. You can see it tonight because it's such a clear night and very, very cold. But all I did was I opened up my window. I looked outside and there was the moon and just at the tip of the moon, kind of like, like that moon's here and, it, and there's this little dot there. It's so obvious. So if you live in Cambridge, you know, don't watch this. Go outside, put on a jacket, look up, look at the moon, and then you will see that very, very pin dot bright star of Bethlehem. Apparently, it's something that you can only see once every 800 years. And, you know, today being Christmas Eve, why not? <laughs> why not do that today? Make it special. You know, look up for this amazing cosmic event that's happening right now. You know, so much has happened in the world the last year has been a downer. But, you know, this perspective, this cosmic perspective of this intersection of these two planets happening at this moment, you know, just gives us a perspective of how things can look bad in a small scale, but in a grander scale, in a cosmic scale, you know, in a God level scale, things can be amazingly good and, and, and just, you know, just wow. So do that, do that. I, I'm, I, that. That's the only reason I'm starting early today because I want to get this over with. Sorry, and and, and I want to go. I'm gonna have a look at, at it again. Yeah, that, that's just incredible. Well, hello, my name is Calvin, and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Let's look at what we are looking at. The four passages that we have set up for today from the Robert Marie McShane Bible Reading Plan. It's Second Chronicles chapter twenty-nine. Revelation chapter 15, Zechariah 11, and John chapter 15. Let me pray and let's get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your plan is good. And thank you so much that your promises are true. During those times when we seem to fail at everything, nothing seems to work out, everything seems bad and from bad to worse. We trust in your goodness. We trust in your power and your plan. And we look forward to the hope that you give us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Zechariah, no Zechariah, 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Let's go. I'm speeding through today because, because I'm just so excited. Um, here we go. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did that which was right in Yahweh's eyes, according to all that David his father had done. Let me just—I just want to check that uh, the audio levels. I'm, I, you know, I didn't do that. I'm not even sure if this is working and you know, that the audio is working, the video is working. I just clicked start. Where, where am I? <laughs> verse 2. Okay, verse 3. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he, Hezekiah, opened the doors of Yahweh's house and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together in the wide places on the east and said to them, Listen to me, you Levites. Now sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of Yahweh and the God of your fathers and carry the filthiness out of the holy place. For our fathers were unfaithful and have done that which was evil in Yahweh our God's sight and have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of Yahweh and turned their backs. 
Also, they've shut up the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, Yahweh's wrath was on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has delivered them to be tossed back and forth and to be an astonishment and a hissing as you see with your eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with Yahweh, the God of Israel, that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, don't be negligent now, for Yahweh has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and that you should be his ministers and burn incense. The Levites arose, Mahath the son of Amasai, and Joel the son of Azariah, and the sons of Kohathites, and the sons of Merari, Kish the son of Abdi, and Azariah the son of Jehalalel, and of the Gershonites, Joah the son of Zimah, and Eden the son of Joah, and of the sons of Elizaphan, Shimri, and Jeuel, and of the sons of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mataniah, and of the sons of Heman, Jehuel, and Shimei, and of the sons of Jeduthun, Shemaiah, and Uzael. They gathered their brothers, sanctified themselves, and went in according to the commandment of the king of Yahweh's words to cleanse Yahweh's house. The priest went into the inner part of Yahweh's house to cleanse it and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in Yahweh's temple into the court of Yahweh's house. The Levites took it from there to carry it out to the brook Kidron. Now they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify, and on the eighth day of the month, they came to Yahweh's porch. They sanctified Yahweh's house in eight days. And on the sixteenth day of the first month, they finished. Then he went into Hezekiah the king within the palace and said, We have cleansed all Yahweh's house, including the altar of burnt offering with all its vessels and the table of showbread with all its vessels. Moreover, we've prepared and sanctified all the vessels which King Ahaz threw away in his reign which he, when he was unfaithful, that's his dad. Behold, they were before Yahweh's altar. Then Hezekiah the king arose early, gathered the princes of the city, and went up to Yahweh's house. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. He commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on Yahweh's altar. So they killed the bulls, and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. They brought near the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. Then the priests killed them, and they made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and a sin offering should be made for all Israel. He set the Levites in Yahweh's house with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from Yahweh by his prophets. The Levites stood with David's instruments and the priests with the trumpets. Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. When the burnt offering began, Yahweh's song also began, along with the trumpets and instruments of David, king of Israel. All the assembly worshipped, the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When they had finished the offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. 
Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princess commanded the Levites to sing praises to Yahweh with the words of David and Asaph the seer. They sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Then Hezekiah answered, Now you have consecrated yourselves to Yahweh. Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into Yahweh's house. The assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. The number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought were seventy bulls, one hundred rams, and two hundred lambs. All these were for a burnt offering to Yahweh. The consecrated things were six hundred head of cattle, wow, and three thousand sheep. But the priests were too few, so that they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore their brothers the Levites helped them until the work was finished, work was ended, and until the priests had sanctified themselves, for the Levites were more upright in heart to sanctify themselves than the priests. Also, the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of Yahweh's house was set in order. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because of that which God had prepared for the people, for the thing was done suddenly. The main thing that this king, this good king did after a line of pretty bad kings was he reinstituted the worship of God in God's house in this temple. And so the whole chapter is just outlining this process, this ritual, this ceremony of the Levites and the priests putting things back together after his dad kind of like tore apart you know all the remember he took about all the all the bits of the temple and he worshiped idols and he kind of like almost sold them to kind of gain favor with the kings but he got conquered anyway uh, but here Hezekiah first thing he did you know he repented he got the whole people to repent and he reinstituted this worship and uh, this fits in with the whole theme of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, um, well, one and two Chronicles are the last books in the Old Testament, and it's during the time when the people have settled back after exile, and they're kind of rebuilding things. Kind of like if you think of after lockdown, after coronavirus, if ever we got to the point where we're kind of like starting to rebuild things again, what do you do? You look back to the heyday. Look back to the good times. And what Second Chronicles does is actually looks back to the most positive and most exemplary of the kings and the priests during the kingdom of Judah to say, hey, this was how it was done then. And therefore, God's blessing was upon the land when they obeyed God and when they were worshiping God. And so that's where there's so much detail here about all the different sacrifices, all the people who were performing the rituals, and especially the king at the center of reestablishing re this worship. And it's almost saying um, during those moments, you know, when it was written during this exile, wouldn't be, it be great if we had this again? Wouldn't it be great if God gave us such a king again and God was dwelt among us again in this temple and we were able to worship him fully and wholeheartedly again? And, you know, maybe that's the kind of longing that we have even right now, being able to come together again and worship God again after we've been apart for so long. And, you know, that's the whole purpose of 1 and 2 Chronicles, that we look back in order to look forward. 
uh, for them, they look back to David. For us, we look back to Jesus, how he has become our true king and our true worshiper, and he brings us into the presence of God. And therefore, he will ensure that this will be restored, that this will happen, and these promises are true. So that's Second Chronicles. Speedily, speedily, speedily. Going through next passage, Revelation chapter 15. Let me just see who's, who's online. I don't think anyone is. It's like Christmas Eve. No, no, this is the last thing anyone will want to do on Christmas Eve. Like listen to some guy, random guy read, read the Bible uh, on the internet. Uh, oh, Kiwai. Hello, Kiwai. Hello, how are you doing? Wow, you must be up really, really late. Happy Christmas to you. It's still Eve here, but happy Christmas to you. Thank you so much for dropping by. You're probably already gone, but yeah, thanks for the like. <laughs> Let's look at Revelation chapter 15. Second passage, I saw another great and marvelous sign in the sky, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them God's wrath is finished. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who overcame the beast, his image, and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, you King of the nations. Who wouldn't fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you only are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. The seven angels who had the seven plagues came out clothed in pure bright linen and wearing golden sashes around their breasts. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one is, was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels would be finished. So a short chapter. Um, and what we have here is kind of an intersection. If you remember, um, the last section we read, chapters 12 to 14, ended with the redeemed people of God. And they were singing praises to God. This new song we saw it yesterday from John, uh, oh, John, <laughs> Revelation chapter 14. And here we meet them again. And they're singing something called the Song of Moses. What's that about? Um, so, uh, well, it's also called the Song of Moses, but also the Song of the Lamb. So there's a connection to chapter 14. Now, in there are two places where we find the Song of Moses. We find it in Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 is the song that Moses sings before he dies. <laughs> he couldn't go into the promised land. And so he sings a song that essentially uh, praises God, but also warns the people about their idolatry, that God will judge the people of their idolatry. So it could be talking about that. But another part, another kind of like song of Moses happens in Exodus 15, where if you remember chapter 14 of Exodus talks about the Red Sea. So everyone remembers that, right? You know, God parts the Red Sea, Israel passes through, and then the Red Sea comes and swallows up all the forces of Egypt. And Moses says, see the salvation of the Lord. And what they see is the Red Sea, you know, kind of swallowing up all these forces. And I think that's what's happening here. You know, that's, it's closer to that kind of 
Exodus 15, salvation and judgment mixed together. And that's what the people see in Exodus 15. That's what Moses sings about in Exodus 15. And that's what ha what's happening here. The people of God are praising God, but at the same time, they're singing about the judgment that God will bring upon his enemies. And so these are the great and marvelous works in verse 4. To the Lord God, righteous and true are your ways, and who would fear you, glorify your name. And so they're singing a song that's triumphal, but triumphal because God will triumph over his enemies. So that's the first thing that we see. You know, the people are singing this. We will be singing this on the last day. They're singing this, though, on well, holding harps and either standing by the shore or on the sea that is mixed with fire. And the sea in Revelation is a picture of chaos, of opposition against God. And fire is a, is a picture of God's judgment against the nation. So it's a mixture of the two. There's opposition and there is judgment coming together. And here, this introduces then to the beginning and the end, kind of like sections of chapter 15, uh, which introduces us to the seven angels who have the seven plagues or the seven bowls. They're given seven bowls here in verse 7. And we really find out about this more in chapter 16 where we start outlining what each bowl looks like. It, it, it mimics the plagues of the Exodus. So again, there's a connection to Exodus, to Moses. Uh, but what happens here is that they're introduced in the beginning. He sees the seven angels or the seven plagues. And then we see the, the redeemed singing the song of Moses. And then we come back to the the seven to the seven angels and so you, you see this interlocking going on and what it does is it, it connects again the salvation and the redemption and the protection of god's people with the judgment that is to come so they're interlinked to one another and we see this interlinking happening in the bowls for verse seven the seven angels are given seven bowls full of the wrath of God. Now these bowls would have been censer bowls. You know, the bowls you put them uh, with coals, and then the coals produce produce um, smoke, and then there's some sweet smelling smoke there. You know, it's some incense, and yes, that's the right word for it. And it, it fills, you know, the whole sanctuary fills the whole temple with this smoke. And we met this idea of the censer and this coals and the smoke back in chapter, 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 chapter 8. If you remember there, uh, the angel takes some coals from the fire, puts it into the censer, and he throws it down onto the earth. That verse 5, filled it with censer. And then, by the way, the, and here he explains that the smoke of the censer were the prayers of the saints. Now that's very interesting and very important because what it does is it establishes that link between God's judgment over the earth. God will throw down this judgment on the earth, but in response to the prayers of the saints. Again, there's this dual connection. That's why there's this interlinking going on. God will pour out judgment on the earth as it is desired, as, as, as he rightly will do so. But at the same time, he will pour it in, in conjunction with the prayers of the saints, you know, especially those who have been killed, those who have given their lives to the gospel. It means it's almost saying that they're praying and asking God for justice and all these prayers God will accumulate and then God will pour out as judgment, as part of his righteous judgment at the last days. 
So yeah, I need to stop there. Or go into do too, it's already probably too much detail, but you know, there's a lot here, and there's a lot of flow, and there's a lot of connections between all the different different passages of Revelation between one another, but also with the Old Testament. We see in Exodus, we see it in various parts of the Old Testament. So that's the second passage, Revelation chapter 15. Let's notice a notification here. Um, yeah, what's this? What's going on? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Let's go on to the third passage, Zechariah chapter 11. Open your doors, Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, cypress tree, for the cedar has fallen because the stately ones are destroyed. Wail, you oaks of Bashan, for the strong forces have has come down. A voice of the wailing of the shepherds, for their glory is destroyed. A voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of the Jordan is ruined. Verse 4, Yahweh my God says, Feed the flock of slaughter. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, Blessed be Yahweh, for I am rich. And their own shepherds don't pity them. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, says Yahweh. But behold, I will deliver every one of the men into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They will strike the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. So I, here talking about Zechariah, so I fed the flock of slaughter, especially the oppressed of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, one, the one I call favor, and the other I call union, and I fed the flock. I cut off the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was weary of them, and their soul also loathed me. Then I said, I will not feed you. That which dies, let it die. And that which is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let those who are left eat each other's flesh. That's so gross, right? I took my staff favor and cut it apart that it might break my covenant that I had made with all the peoples. It was broken in that day. And thus, the poor of the flock that listened to me knew that it was Yahweh's word. I said to them, if you think it best, give me my wages, and if not, keep them. So they weighed for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Yahweh said to me, throw it to the pot, the, the silver you got, throw it to the potter, the handsome price that I was valued at by them. I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter in Yahweh's house. Then I cut apart my other staff, even union, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Hold on, I'll explain what's going on. Let's just finish this for now. Verse 15, Yahweh said to me, Take for yourself yet again the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not visit those who are cut off, neither will seek those who are scattered, nor heal that which is broken, nor feed that which is sound. But he will eat the meat of the fat sheep and will tear their hoofs in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. The sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be completely withered and his right eye will be totally blind. <laughs> What's going on here? Notice that phrase, the flock of slaughter. I mentioned it a few times, you know, feed the flock of slaughter. And in verse 7, Zechariah feeds this flock of slaughter. It's talking about a flock of sheep that are going to be killed. 
and it's kind of tragic. You know, whatever happens, they're going to be killed. And uh, Yahweh is, is almost giving uh, this parable by asking Zechariah to take on. It might, I'm not sure whether it's real sheep, whether he actually became a shepherd at this time. But essentially, it's doing something for a group of people who will reject you anyway. So why are they... Why are they slated for slaughter? For, well, for number one, they've had very, very bad shepherds in the past. So these are shepherds who either want to sell them, you know, say, bless, bless sell them, uh, those who sell them say, blessed, I'm, I'm rich. You know, some, some people want to, they just want to take advantage of these people. Uh, or some of them, they just don't care about it. They don't pity them. And other people want to buy them. You know, they want, they want to take them away. So they're, they're being pulled and pushed and being managed in a, in a very bad way by very, very bad shepherds and buyers and sellers. And God says, you know, for a long history of time, he's saying that his people have been mismanaged. They have been oppressed. And therefore, that's one of the reasons why they're in the state that they are. So that's why they go about to be slaughtered. They're about to be killed. But at the same time, you know, uh, God is saying this sheep themselves reject God as the good shepherd. So that's what God asks Zechariah to be in verse 7. seven. He says, uh, Zechariah, you know, take over this flock. And so what Zechariah does is he actually feeds this flock. You know, they're going to die, but he feeds them and he cares for them. And so he has two staffs and, you know, good stuff. One he calls favor or graciousness. And they're talking about union. I'm not sure what the union it might be talking about. I think maybe um, the union between Judah and Israel. I don't know. I'm not sure about that bit. But the favor one, he, he actually breaks apart the covenant. It means breaks apart that promise that God has had, that contract that God has had with his people for a long time. And he essentially quits his, his job in verse 12. He says, you know, uh, if, you, if you don't want me to work anymore, you can either pay me what you owe me, or, you know, if you don't want to pay me, that's fine as well. So what, but what happens is they actually pay him 30 pieces of silver. Very significant number, right? If you knew your Old Testament, uh, that's what Judah betray, Judas betrays Jesus for, the 30 pieces of silver. But what happens here is this 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah is kind of like, um, what's the term for it when you get paid off to leave your job? Some kind of compensation, that, that's the price that they pay him. And God says, take this 30 pieces of silver and throw it to this potter. And this potter is probably a creator of idols. That means let them go about and do whatever they want to do in terms of idolatry. It's, it's a sign that God has kind of like given up on his people. So he breaks the covenant. He gives them what they want to do. They want to go into idolatry. And then he cuts it off, cuts apart the other stuff, this union stuff. And here, that's why I think it's that connection between Israel and Judah. But I'm not sure about that one, to be honest. And so that's what the good shepherd does. And the last bit is he gives the picture of the bad shepherd, you know, and doesn't care about his. And he's, he's not able to do the job and he doesn't want to do the job, that kind of thing. And this kind of background of, you know, the good shepherd looking after very bad sheep or the bad shepherd who really doesn't care about the flock or these other bad shepherds who just want to take advantage and eat the flock and the flock themselves want to eat one another. You know, it, it's the background to when Jesus comes and says in John chapter 11, I am the good shepherd. And Jesus contrasts himself with the 
hired hand who only does it does it like a job when he sees um, the wolf coming he runs away and it shows how Jesus is the good shepherd because on the one hand he cares for the flock and he loves the flock and he feeds the flock the way that Zachariah feeds the flock but he also shows that Jesus is a good shepherd because he is rejected by the flock themselves you know this is the flock of slaughter and so Zechariah chapter 11 is a very rich hard to understand I mean I must admit it's hard to understand but it gives that kind of rich background to Jesus's identification as the Good Shepherd and indeed as God himself third passage down that's that's keep going John chapter 14 um, oh wow okay <laughs> yeah cool that's great uh, last chapter John chapter 14 uh, here we go Jesus says don't let your heart be troubled believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many homes well okay I'll come back to that later if it weren't so I would have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and will receive you to myself that where I am you may be there also you know where I go and you know the way Thomas said to him Lord we don't know where you're going how can we know the way Jesus said to him I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me if you had known me you would have known my father also from now on you know him and have seen him Philip said to him Lord show us the Father and that will be enough for us Jesus said to him have I been with you such a long time and you do not know me Philip he who has seen me has seen the Father how do you say show us the Father don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me the words that I tell you I speak not from myself but the Father who lives in me does his work believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the very works sake most certainly I tell you he who believes in me the works that I do he will do also and he will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father whatever you will ask in my name I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son if you will ask anything in my name I will do it if you love me keep my commands I will pray to the Father and he will give you another counselor that he may be with you forever the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive um, for it doesn't see him and doesn't know him you know him for he lives with you and will be in you I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more but you will see me because I live you will live also in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you one who has my commandments and keeps them that person is one who loves me one who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will reveal myself to him Judas not Iscariot said to him Lord what has happened that you're about to reveal yourself to us and not to the world Jesus answered him if a man loves me he will keep my word my father will love, love him and he will come to him and make our home with him 
He who doesn't love me doesn't keep my words. The word which you hear isn't mine, but the Father who sent me. I have said these things to you while still living with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. You heard how I told you, I go away and I come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I said I'm going to my father, for the father is greater than I. Now I've told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I will no more speak much with you for the prince of the world comes and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father commanded me, even so I do. Arise, let's go from here. Jesus begins by reassuring them. You know, don't let your hearts be troubled. Um, he's about to die, by the way. <laughs> um, and you know he's about to suffer. He knows everything is ahead about ahead of him is just condemnation and death and even betrayal. But he sees his friends are troubled, and here Jesus reassures them, "Don't worry. You know everything is happening according to plan. Don't let your heart be troubled." He says, verse one, "Believe in God. Believe in me." In my father's house are many homes, and um, the King James has many mansions. You know how a house can contain many mansions inside this house. You know that that um, that has a very rich picture. But uh, I think homes make sense because it's the word remainings is dwelling. Um, yeah, uh, if you, so like my pastor, a Presbyterian pastor in the Presbyterian church lives in the church, in the back of the church, uh, and that part of the church is called the manse, M-A-N-S-E, um, and it comes from the Greek word meno, which means to remain, it's where you live, it's where you dwell, and that is very such a, no one uses the word dwell anymore, but it's the idea that, you know, it's where you live, it's where you hang out, hang out, that, that's, that's kind of place. And if you remember chapter one, um, Jesus has a few people asking him, where do you remain? And Jesus showed them where he remained. He essentially showed them his house. But the idea was there of relationship. It wasn't just that Jesus lived in that location, in that address, but they were coming to spend time with him and almost like hanging out with him. And so here in this picture of essentially heaven, verse two, saying, in my father's house are many remainings. It's talking not just about lots of room. There's a lot of space. You can have tennis courts. You can have uh, space to do all kinds of things. Heaven will be this amazing big space. No, 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 no. It's talking about this will be a space where you can continue this relationship with me. And that's what the, the, the idea behind that, behind that word meno, behind remaining between homes and even mansions is it's, it's, it's where you can continue this relationship with Jesus. And that's what goes be, stands behind that reassurance. Jesus is just saying, you know, I am with you and you will be with me. That's his promise. 
that's why he says, trust in God, trust in me. You know, we, I will not leave you alone. You know, I, I know what you're going through. I will come back and bring you to be with me again. And I'll, I'll just leave that as the kind of summary to this passage because otherwise, you know, it will be too much there. Um, but, you know, many of us right now, myself included, are separated, you know, from our families. And when we say stuff like, you know, I wish I could go back to Malaysia, or even like, I wish I could go to eat nasi lemak in, what's that place already? A village park again, <laughs> which is so good. You get the crispy chicken with the nasi lemak. Uh, what I mean behind all those um, kind of like reminiscings is I, I wish I could do that with my friends, with my family back home. You know, that's what makes those places special. That's what makes Malaysia special. You know, it's where my family is. It's where the people I miss are. And I look forward to the time that I can be with them again. And that's what heaven is for us as Christians. It's just the space and time and opportunity to be with the God and with the Savior whom we have a relationship right now with again. But we will have that relationship even fuller and even much more, you know, richer in that day. That's what we mean. And that's what we look forward to. Why don't I pray and close this time together? Heavenly Father, um, our hearts long for you, and that's a good thing. It hurts, and at times it causes us to despair. But your promise is that you will come back, you will bring us back to you, and we will be together again. Thank you that these promises are true, and thank you that because of Christmas, you did this by sending Jesus to us. You did this by sending light into the darkness. It reminds us that you will do this again. And so please plant this word of promise in our hearts that we will look beyond the darkness. They will look to you and we will long for your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bye. Go, I'm going to go out and look at that star right now. See you. Bye. <laughs>